Welcome to How Life Changed, a podcast that features stories of real people and how their lives have changed as a result of COVID-19. I'm your host, John Noltner, and I'm glad you could join us. Change is a constant in life, but as a global community, we're now in the midst of unprecedented change as a result of the pandemic, and it's altering our work, home, and community lives in unexpected and profound ways. Each of us will experience this outbreak in our own unique fashion, each of us a single thread woven into the fabric of this historic event. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll explore just one of those threads, one person's story, and through that lens, hope to gain some human insight into the bigger picture of what's happening in our world today. This episode of How Life Changed is being recorded on Friday, April 17th, 2020. Today I'm talking with Ambassador Jim Pettit, who has retired from 38 years of service with the U.S. Department of State. Ambassador, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about your background with the State Department? Uh, it goes back, as you as you just mentioned, it goes back 38 years. I was actually 24 years old when I joined the Foreign Service. The average age for people entering the Foreign Service is around 30, 31, uh, and that remains true to this day. So uh, I was, you know, not not far out of college. I uh, took the Foreign Service exam, the written, the orals, and uh, my orientation class started in March of 1981. We were actually the, for, the first uh, Foreign Service class under Ronald Reagan. It was a very different time. This is all pre-internet. Uh, the nature of our work was very different at that time. And remember, it was also the Cold War. So the world has changed a lot since then. Uh, it's been very interesting to watch it from, uh, from my perspective. I have served in many, many different countries, and I'm sure you know the full list will come out as, as, as we talk. Okay, and you, you retired when? I retired in uh, September of 2018, so I've been retired about about a year and a half. My last uh, tour was as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Moldova, which is a uh, small country, former Soviet Republic, uh, located between Romania and Ukraine. Okay, and I understand that you are not the only person in your household who has some vast diplomatic experience. That is true. My wife, uh, fortunately, got into the Foreign Service uh, when I was having my third tour, uh, which was great for a variety of reasons. Uh, we did. We we do have two daughters uh, that we have that we've raised in the Foreign Service. They've lived in a lot of different countries, uh, and I, I think they both valued the experience. My wife was uh, uh, confirmed as U.S. Ambassador to Latvia about seven or eight months after I went to Moldova as ambassador. So we are a rare example of a married couple who actually served as ambassadors simultaneously. Uh, there have only been five such, uh, such uh, married couples. And uh, it, was, uh, it was interesting from a variety of perspectives, but mostly having been married uh, for, at that point, about 35 years, uh, to actually be separated for the first time in our marriage for four years presented its own challenges. Fortunately, because of modern technology, we were able to, to Skype and Zoom and, and, uh, and, and speak to each other at least daily. 
and now you are self-isolating together, and so there's no shortage of time together. We are. We are probably more than we bargained for. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my wife actually retired later than I did. She retired last July. So we, we were already in a stage of our lives where we were getting used to living together again. And as you can well imagine, I, the quarantine presents all sorts of unique uh, challenges to, to any couple or family or anyone else who finds themselves in quarantine together. Absolutely. So... I've been reading a lot about sort of the unprecedented numbers of American citizens that the State Department is repatriating, is bringing back to the United States in this COVID-19 crisis. As I read about it, I hear about repatriation. I hear about evacuation. Can you define those terms for me? Sure. Repatriation is... uh something that has existed for most of our history. It's, it's, it's considered really a, a basic right of American citizens to seek protection from their diplomatic representatives overseas. And one absolute right that Americans have is the right to having uh, an embassy or consulate assist them in returning to the United States, regardless of their economic or other circumstances. Uh, it's not a free service, and I think that that <clears throat> comes as a surprise to many. Uh, you are expected to, to pay your way to the extent that you can. What normally happens, especially in this day and age, is that most Americans who need to return to the U.S. for whatever reason are able to do so uh, on their own means. They book a flight. They, they transfer money if necessary. But there are cases often involving people who may have uh, disabilities, particularly mental disabilities, uh, or who have been robbed and have no money, or who are fleeing some sort of civil unrest or war or natural disaster, where they simply don't have the means to uh, return to the U.S. on their own. The COVID virus uh, situation, which is unique and unprecedented, is a case where you had, uh, you know, as, as you would at any given time, thousands and thousands of Americans overseas who had return tickets, who had the means to return to the United States, but who found themselves in countries under quarantine and lockdown. Borders were sealed all over the place. I uh, personally knew of, of two different individuals, uh, one in Morocco, one on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean, who were simply unable to get a flight back to the US, uh, didn't really know what they were gonna do. I mean, uh, you, I think we all understand that just staying on in a, in a hotel is, is not an option for most of us. The State Department tends to have a conservative and cautious approach to repatriation. We always evaluate the circumstances because ultimately, uh, what happens when there simply is no other way is that we, we provide a loan Mind you, it is, not a, it is not a gift or a grant. We provide a loan for them to get a ticket to return. In this case, since it was very difficult to cross borders and since so many flights were canceled, uh, there, was a, there were a huge number of evacuation flights arranged uh, through the State Department, obviously in coordination with a lot of other government uh, agencies, to evacuate U.S. citizens with the, very, with the resulting very impressive figure of over 50,000 Americans during the COVID-19 crisis who were evacuated on charter, special, or other types of flights back to the United States. Maybe these numbers aren't available to us, but do you have a sense that 
the American citizens who were abroad who wanted to come home, that they're all back, or are there still some lingering cases out there? There are definitely lingering cases, and of course, circumstances differ. Uh, most of us, when we think of an American stranded abroad, you're thinking of tourists or people who are making a short trip. It gets complicated. There are a lot of dual nationals. There are a lot of uh, American citizens who actually might have uh, might have been living abroad with uh, family or friends. There are other expatriates, uh, Americans who are working overseas. So in, in essence, their home is overseas. Uh, in many cases, that just involves staying where they were, what we call sheltering in place. Uh, but in, in, you know, in the cases of Americans who, who really had their, their sole residence was the United States, as you can well imagine, there's a certain amount of uh, panic and desperation when you think you're on a one-week or two-week vacation and all of a sudden you're being told, you know, we can't, we, you can't go home. Uh, so there's actually there were actually two steps to a lot of these evacuations. One was setting up the logistics of getting flights out. Another one was getting permission from local authorities to have an international flight. And that ranged from very difficult to very accommodating. Uh, with cruise ships, quite often, and, and, and particularly with the people that I knew who were on the Mediterranean cruise, there was difficulty even finding a country in Europe that would allow the the ship to dock. So these were uh, difficult problems, unprecedented problems to a large degree. Uh, the way it's handled in Washington uh, is through the Bureau of Consular Affairs. I was uh, formerly a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Office of Overseas Citizen Services. And what they do, uh, any, any, any type of crisis like this that involves large scale evacuation, uh, we form a task force, which is interagency. It's not just State Department. It's it's the military and everybody else, because sometimes we have to use military assets. And uh, to coordinate and, most important, <clears throat> communicate with the Americans overseas. As you can well imagine, how do you communicate with uh, Americans who are scattered about? There's no requirement that they register with us. That said, there is a registration system. It's the Smart Traveler Enrollment Program known by its acronym STEP. Any American traveling abroad, I encourage to register uh, with their local embassy through the STEP program. That allows the embassy and the State Department to reach out and inform them uh, of what they need to do to participate, for example, in an evacuation. My friend Dave Panetti, who also works for the State Department, encourages me to sign up for the Smart Traveler Enrollment Program. And it's for exactly this type of situation, right? That is correct. Uh, it's something a lot of people don't do until there's a crisis, which is fine. I mean, we encourage people to do it in any event because what happens is sometimes uh, there'll be a serious family emergency, for example, back in the United States, and they don't know how to reach people. This this was a lot more common back before the age of, of the internet and the cell phone, and they would often contact the embassy, and then the embassy would try to contact the individual. But um, uh, technology has, has changed a lot of things, and the ability to communicate with these email blasts uh, has been very, very helpful. Uh, the result is that when you think of 50,000 people scattered around the globe, being able to actually show up at the right place at the right time to participate in evacuation is a major accomplishment. Sure. So, so I'm curious, in your 38-year career, uh, there must have been some times when you were involved in repatriation. 
Absolutely, both as a consular officer overseas, but also as when I was deputy assistant secretary and overseas citizen services. Um, the ones, of course, that are most memorable are the sort of mass evacuations, because generally evacuation of, uh, of an American often has to deal with uh, some sort of disability or illness or other emergency uh, where we make very much individual arrangements. Uh, with mass evacuations, you have to be very creative. Um, during the uh, 2006 uh, conflict between Israel and Lebanon, for example, there were there was a there was a very high number of Americans in Lebanon. Many of them Lebanese American, at the time, uh, a lot of bad press for the State Department because these people were scattered all over Lebanon. Bombs are dropping, soldiers are, are invading, and uh, they're wondering why the State Department isn't able to return them to the United States. So again, a lot of the job is about managing expectations. But here, here's, here's what we did. We actually were able to uh, get a cruise ship to show up uh, in the, uh, the harbor there near Beirut and send out messages to everybody where to show up at the port. But then, of course, you're talking about a war zone. So we don't want to expose people to a war zone in, in the effort to evacuate them. So uh, this is where diplomacy comes into play. We actually were able to coordinate with the Israelis to suspend hostilities while we evacuated our citizens. So that's one example. Other examples have to do with natural disasters. Uh, the tsunami and nuclear plant meltdown in Japan of a few years ago uh, was another case where you had thousands of American citizens scattered around Japan. The tsunami knocked out a lot of infrastructure. And then, of course, the nuclear meltdown created panic, even in cities like Tokyo. So uh, what people need to bear in mind uh, in, in terms of us providing uh, services to U.S. citizens overseas is that we're not the military. We're not the military. We are small. We are tiny. Our embassies are small. Our concert staffs are small. We rely a lot on the resources of the local government and sometimes of our own military. But uh, with the tsunami in Japan, we literally had consular officers going up into the hard struck areas, uh, walking through morgues, just eyeballing uh, people, trying to figure out, well, does that person look American, which is not very scientific. It's kind of the worst case of racial profiling. But on the other hand, it was all we could do at the time. And uh, they were able to identify some Americans because it's obviously very important. Well, part of our job is also repatriating the remains of deceased Americans but also just setting up buses uh, to get them to major airports where we were able to charter flights. Uh, it, was a, it was just a tremendous effort. And I can't emphasize enough how limited uh, and strained our human resources are overseas. Uh, people walk by an embassy building, sometimes they see this huge building and they think, oh, okay, you know, what do they do all day? Well, only a tiny percentage of them are involved in assistance to American citizens. Most of them represent other agencies, uh, or they're doing political reporting, or they're doing economic, just, just a whole lot of other stuff. So it's, uh, it is a very small cadre of people. Uh, consular work is generally characterized by sort of one, one person at a time. And that's why when you have these mass evacuations, it's, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes money, 
and again, it's about managing expectations because generally when you read the press or hear the press, uh, and, and this also happened with the COVID-19 crisis, a lot of complaints. People say, I called the embassy, nobody answered. I called the embassy, they said they couldn't do anything. Uh, people get impatient. And, but the fact is, is that the result was we were able to evacuate about 50, over 50,000 Americans. Yeah, from 106 different countries is my understanding. It was quite a remarkable thing. Hmm. So, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, some notes that I saw on consular staff in Wuhan, China, the, the epicenter of COVID-19. Uh, some of the notes I saw said that in mid-October, the local staff in Wuhan recognized that there was some sort of flu going on. Uh, in December, they noticed that the local officials had closed schools, uh, and they reported that to Beijing, to, to the, embassy, the U.S. embassy there. Um, it was the end of January that the consular staff was evacuated along with some U.S. citizens from Wuhan. Um, but, but it suggests to me the importance of having U.S. diplomats on the ground around the world who can actually witness and report back on some of the, some of the things that are going on locally. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, and and and, and this is one thing where, as technology progresses, now and then you'll hear people say, "Why don't you? Why can't we just do all of this from the State Department? Why do we have to send people overseas?" There is no substitute for boots on the ground, particularly when it comes to consular work, because you have to have someone there who knows what's going on, knows local officials, knows the language, knows how things work. Uh, they do not know this stuff in Washington. They rely very heavily on, on consulate and embassy staff. And what happened in Wuhan was you're absolutely right. There was a, a lot of reporting coming out. Um, we're not talking about scientific or even, you know, sort of investigative journalism type reporting. This is just people who live there. And I think that's the important thing. You know, we're over there with our families. Our kids are going to school. Uh, we are, we, we have friends in the local community. We certainly know local officials and, uh, there's no substitute for that. And what happened with Wuhan, the fact that they were even, even able to kind of give, uh, reports on, on what seemed to be happening, that, uh, that, that's very useful. Uh, we all know there are problems with the Chinese government in terms of, of response time and actually, unfortunately, even concealing what was going on for a while. Not unique to China, by the way, not unique to China. And uh, th there is no substitute. And if you're an American in distress overseas, you want to talk to an American. You don't want to have to call an 800 number in the United States. Sure. So, so along those same lines, as I listen to you talk about the fact that consular staff is small, your resources are a little bit limited, um, the history of the last few years has been difficult for the State Department. I know there was a hiring freeze in 2017. I know that staff in this COVID crisis um, has been limited because actually some were uh, exposed to COVID-19. Uh, there were some who were self-isolating. So, uh, so all of this, uh, this amazing maneuvering has been happening with limited staff. Can you, can you talk about the dedication that you've seen in your foreign service professionals through your career? I've seen tremendous, tremendous dedication. It's, uh, of course, I mean, people always want to talk up uh, their colleagues and their chosen profession, but the fact is um, 
a lot of the work is downright heroic. I mean, remember, in many instances, especially when you're in a war zone or civil unrest, you yourself are exposed to the danger. With COVID-19, of course, we all are. Uh, but with consular officers, you know, they, they, they have to get out and uh, overseas. And, and, and in Washington, you're talking about task forces that generally are operating 24-7. Again, with limited staff. Uh, you're right about the, uh, the there, there's definitely been a drop in, uh, in, in staff at the State Department. Uh, some of this uh, through, through because people are either retiring or moving on to other things. Uh, there's been a concerted effort to reduce the State Department's budget. Uh, Congress, fortunately, has been able to forestall a lot of that. But uh, there have been morale issues. There are a lot of positions that go vacant and are not filled. Uh, and for all of the above reasons, the, the, this just presents even more sort of more challenges to a staff that is has always been, and we pride ourselves on this, has always been nonpartisan, nonpolitical. We have one mandate, and that is to protect U.S. citizens abroad. So in that vein, is there is there one bit of advice you would offer for citizens as they think about travel? I mean, obviously not now, but in the future. What what does a State Department professional want American citizens to understand when they go abroad? Uh, I'd spoken earlier about managing expectations, and I think that what American citizens uh, need to realize when they go overseas is that you are, in the end, you are in a foreign country. So invoking the US Constitution and what your rights should be do not necessarily apply overseas. And I, and I don't mean to be patronizing when I say that because most Americans are pretty savvy, pretty educated. There is a, an American spirit of uh, independence and resilience uh, where people generally, and this is, I want to emphasize this, most Americans uh, overseas who fall in distress actually do not go to the embassy. They work it out themselves. They figure it out. Uh, maybe they have to contact folks back home to, to forward funds. Maybe they have to rebook a ticket. They do figure it out. Or they go to local authorities. There's absolutely nothing to prevent you from going to local police, local authorities to work things out. But there are many Americans, again, it can be because of disability or it can be because of the severity of the situation who do need embassy assistance. And that's fine. That's why we are there. Uh, but uh, again, it's about managing expectations. Uh, sometimes uh, embassies get called all the time, for example, for people who have a flight canceled or whose uh, hotel reservations aren't being honored or that sort of thing. And we help to the extent that we can. But a lot of these things would happen in the U.S. as well. And, and the, 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 uh, the point I would present in such cases is, would you really expect this if you were uh, sitting at home in Minnesota and your hotel reservation was canceled or whatever? What would you do? And, of course, you wouldn't think of calling the federal government. But um, I, I will tell you this. We, we were talking earlier about the dedication of consular officers. They are unsung heroes. Most of what they do is actually not well known. A lot of these sort of most difficult cases where there's a lot of effort and a lot of personal sacrifice on the part of consular officers is for people who are perhaps mentally ill, who are destitute, and where you're literally holding them by the hand and walking them through things and making sure everything 
everything turns out all right. Uh, we usually don't get a lot of accolades for that because it's kind of invisible, but it is something that we spend a lot of time on. And uh, we do it because uh, that's what we're supposed to do. And we get we get our own satisfaction out of helping those in distress. But a lot of time, it's it, we're helping people who really can't help themselves. Right. Right. So this last question is on a little bit more of a personal nature, and I'm making an assumption because I myself have a chronic case of wanderlust, and uh-huh. uh, and I'm assuming if somebody has traveled the world with the State Department that they must enjoy travel. I myself am getting a little restless not being on the road. When these restrictions end, where is the one place in the world you really want to go? Uh, that's a very good question, a very fair question. It's, it's, it's very similar to another question I get quite often, which was, what was your favorite post? And I always answer that by saying, that's like asking, who, you know, who's your favorite child? Uh, every, you know, every region, every country has its pluses and minuses. Uh, I don't think there's any place uh, on the globe that's not worth seeing. Now, personally, when you ask prospectively, where would I like to go in the future? Obviously, the places I haven't been to. There are plenty of places actually in the United States as well that I have not been to. Uh, and that's what I would want to do. I want new experiences. I'm, I, I, I'm not one of these people who uh, buys a timeshare and always goes to the same place for vacation. So Yeah, I, I'm, on, I'm on the same page with you. And, <laughs> and along the same lines, people often ask me for this project, A Piece of My Mind, who is my favorite interview? Uh, and, and I respond that same way. I say, some, that's like asking who's your favorite child. And some days I can answer that question, <laughs> but other days it shifts. Uh, right. But always my favorite interview is the next one. Got it. There's always something new to see, always something new to hear. So there it is. I want to thank you for taking a little bit of time to talk today, uh, Ambassador. It's great to hear your perspective, and um, I appreciate your insights. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it. All right. Stay safe. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for How Life Changed. I'm your host, John Nolner, and I look forward to seeing you next time. How Life Changed is a series produced by A Piece of My Mind, a multimedia arts project that uses storytelling to rediscover what connects us. You can find A Piece of My Mind on Instagram at A-P-O-M-M-Stories, on Twitter at A Piece of My Mind 1, that's the numeral 1, Facebook and YouTube at A Piece of My Mind, Peace is always spelled out, P-E-A-C-E, And you can find all of those links on our website, apomm.net. That's the acronym for a piece of my mind.net. Listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend to listen too. Together, we'll see the world in new ways, one story at a time.